Welcome to Neurodiversity University. This is Dr. Brandon Park and this is Marissa Davis. And today's topic is going to be fetal alcohol exposure or spectrum. This happens to be your specialty, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Okay, so tell me a little bit more fetal alcohol spectrum or exposure. Like what does that consist of? Um, it consists of just a litany of different, you know, kinds of things. I started really researching this at, um, first on my internship at, uh, Sonoma Developmental Center, where I would see a lot of people that had a profound neurological deficits from being exposed to different substances, um, particularly alcohol. We found out alcohol is one of the worst, but it is not the only one that causes, causes problems. And then when I was at Napa State Hospital, my first big boy job, (laughs) (laughs) I um, put on my big boy pants and as I was the full-time neuropsychologist and so I'd have to go into all these different um, really complex cases and try and figure out what is what. And so I began spending hours and hours reading research and looking through just pictures and after pictures to look for different symptoms that you'll see facially that help you to know that there's been, you know, a possibility of alcohol exposure. Because a lot of times we wouldn't know, or sometimes, you know, parents wouldn't, you know, digress or, you know, let us know that this had happened. Sometimes, you know, I'd have many times I'd interview a parent and they're like, yeah, I didn't do any alcohol at all. And like, and, and then you kind of ask them a little more and you find out that they stopped drinking alcohol once they found out they were pregnant. And sometimes that was, you know, two and a half months down the road. So there had been, you know, exposure. But as soon as they knew, they stopped, which is great. But they get, they, there was still some exposure in, in several cases that I worked with. And so symptoms. Um, wow, there there's so many symptoms. But one of the things that... You know, we see like when you look in the media, you always see the the facial pictures, and and their pic and their faces look quite different. You'll see that, um, and this is specific to fetal alcohol. This isn't to other substances, but to fetal alcohol exposure, um, it doesn't always happen. You can have you can have exposure and not have any of the physical symptoms, or you can have the physical symptoms and not have some of the mental symptoms, or you know, a mixture thereof. But on the physical symptoms, some things we end up seeing is like the the bridge of their nose will be flattened out um their cheeks will be flattened out um, one of the big ones we end up seeing is the philtrum that little groove right below your nose that goes down to your lip that's the philtrum that tends to be smoothed out and sometimes elongated so like they have a longer kind of upper lip than they should um, also they tend to you tend to see thinner lips than is typical for their ethnic background or their racial background. So, um, you know, if you have to be Polynesian, you typically always have, you know, very large lips, but if they're a lot thinner, you know, if you have white guy lips, <laughs> then, <laughs> and you're probably, that's so racist. I'm, I'm going to go down for that. Anyways, <laughs> for the, for, for your ethnic diversity, like if your lips are a lot thinner than you would expect, that can be a symptom. A lot of times you'll see things in their ears, their eyes can be farther spread apart. Um, Sometimes uh, their chin isn't fully developed. Sometimes the webbing on their neck, you'll see it almost, I've worked with some kids like this. There's like this 
this webbing from their ears to their shoulders. And so they've got like this kind of mm -hmm. extra thick webbing. Um, sometimes they'll be too short. Um, you know, lack of height is also a, a symptom that you can start to see. Sometimes you see some webbing between the fingers. Um, or more webbing than would be normal. Like we all have a, like a teeny little bit of webbing between our fingers, but you see that it's more thickened or pronounced, um, comes up farther than normal, um, and just kind of other abnormalities that you can start seeing. Those are the physical ones, but where it really matters is how does it affect them behaviorally, emotionally, cognitively? Um, and those are the things that really start coming out. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you, so I appreciate all of kind of like the, the physical features, but I mean, we've talked about this several times and you've always classified this as a neurodiversity. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit more about like the cognitive stuff and, and why you would classify this as that. Um, it starts affecting the brain when, you know, the brain is getting bathed in alcohol or any other substance. And sometimes I like to refer to it as prenatal substance exposure because you know, all, you know, tobacco, marijuana, cocaine, all, all these different substances can have effects on the brain and they do actually show up cognitively. They may just not be quite as impactful as alcohol. Um, and a lot of times people that drink alcohol um, are also sometimes using other substances. So right. thinking of it kind of as prenatal substance exposure is helpful. So cognitively, how does it affect somebody? It can affect them in so many different ways, but some of the ways that we see really often is we see poor ability to plan and organize. Sometimes this is referred to as executive functioning. And we're actually gonna at some point do a podcast on what executive functioning is. Um, but their ability to kind of plan things out, to predict things, to control their impulses. Impulse control tends to be something that's, you know, a huge symptom of prenatal substance exposure. So, you know, a difficult time managing their impulses, and this also ends up tending to play out with managing their emotions. So they struggle to manage their emotions. They'll be more emotionally dysregulated a lot more often. Um, and what we end up also seeing is we'll see learning disabilities, um, difficulty with math, writing, reading. Um, we'll also sometimes see effects on processing speed, working memory. We will sometimes see what I like to call only in the moment. You know, in our last episode, we talked about mindfulness. Um, I think it's just this beautiful thing that we all need to be practicing. It's really interesting. I've had several cases I've worked with where they've lost kind of the ability to really think forward and think backward in the moment when they're trying to make decisions. So a lot of us get stuck too often being in the future of the past and not being present. Mm -hmm. um, but we still need that ability to think forward and to think back as we're making decisions in the moment. They a lot of times have lost that ability in the moment to think forward and to think backward so they make more accurate and more thoughtful decisions. And so it, they're literally only in the moment. And so the only thing they can do is think about what they need right then. It's like they become perpetual two-year-olds. You know, it's like the marshmallow is in front of me. I'm going to eat the freaking marshmallow. <laughs> you know, there's there's a psychological study where they put, it was, it was actually five-year-olds, and they would say, okay, don't eat this marshmallow. And if you don't eat it for, you know, two minutes, then I'll give you two marshmallows and you can eat both of them. And most of the kids would eat that marshmallow right away. <laughs> yeah. There's a marshmallow. How can you help? Exactly. Um, 
And suddenly you've got these kids that that or these these adolescents and young adults, their brain is still stuck in that phase of like they can only see what's right in front of them. They can only function on what what's right in front of them. There's a little bit of object permanence kind of issues going on. And so this idea of like, oh, I have to think about how this is going to affect me in two hours or two days or two weeks or two months. That doesn't make sense. The in the moment doesn't register now when they're sitting down they're thoughtful you're talking with them they can think about that but in the moment when they're trying to make a decision you know and you're making those rapid decisions they don't think about the past or the future so they're constantly living in the moment so in their mind they get a marshmallow now as opposed to two marshmallows if they wait two minutes Mm -hmm. so they're just concerned with getting that marshmallow yeah okay so and so sometimes the way that plays out is i want you to do what i want right now and it doesn't matter how that's going to affect our relationship Mm -hmm. you know two weeks from now you're going to give me what i want right now and so if they sell that can kind of play out which I'm sure adds to a lot of frustration because there's a lot of like in the moment, like I need this now, urgency, mm-hmm. and they don't understand that, you know, there could be an end result. Mm-hmm. So I imagine families and all that kind of struggle because they're trying to reason with them and trying to teach them what's ahead and they can't see that. Yeah. Now, once the moment's gone, like it, sometimes it's because they're trying to make a decision quickly or sometimes it's because there's a lot of emotion and so their emotion's driving them. Once the emotion's down or the immediacy has gone down, mm-hmm. they're like, oh, yeah, that was a really just stupid decision. <laughs> they, can, they can see it then. But in the moment, they can't, if that makes sense. Yeah, so talk to me a little bit more. I mean, we're kind of talking about, like, kind of how they see the world. But, like, so, like, emotional struggles that they're having. So connecting, you know, one marshmallow versus two and thinking forward and all that kind of stuff. But, like... Emotionally, like, how would they perceive those around them? Or, like, you know, how would they, you know, take on the world themselves? And, again, remember, it, it is so different with every different... It depends on when their brain was bathed with, with the substances, alcohol or whatever, and when it wasn't, and how frequently it was, or how severely it was bathed in, in those. So, you know, like, um, sometimes someone drink really badly for, you know, a couple weekends in a row, but otherwise they were okay... But that intense amount of alcohol and any other substances that went in at that time could really affect. So when I'm talking about these symptoms, this isn't something I see in every single case. Mm-hmm. But I see them in a lot of cases, not only from the research and from talking to other professionals, but in cases that I've been testing with and testing on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, the... I lost my train of thought. <laughs> so we're talking more about like the emotional oh, like struggles and stuff that they might have. Yeah, and so they struggle with because they can't think forward or backward. Their their emotions get moving and get going, and a lot of times the part of the brain, because also executive function is affected, it helps to to manage their emotions and hamper them, you know, and tamper them down. Kind of the 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 things that kind of help give our emotions some some structure and support so they don't just go everywhere those things don't aren't in very well so they tend to emotionally struggle to manage their emotions when they get really strong and they also can't think about how that emotion is going to play out and so they tend to have a really tough time managing and thinking about their emotions knowing what to do with their emotions their emotions tend to come on stronger and faster um we see, you know, especially negative emotions, but even happy emotions. I've seen uh, a kid go from just happy to like goofy giddy 
<laughs> when it didn't really fit the context of what was going on. Um, so just being able to kind of you know manage and, and hold your your emotions together so that they're you know useful to you um, is important. A lot of times I like to compare emotions to horses. You know, if if you try and jump on a wild Mustang mm-hmm. bareback, you're gonna, <laughs> it's going to be kind of an exciting ride. Can I video that? <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can. Um, but and I used to work out in the desert, and we I came across a herd of two hundred wild Mustangs mm-hmm. one time. It was amazing. But, you know, if you learn how to work with a horse, you build a relationship with it and it trusts you so you can put, you know, put um, a saddle on it and a bridle, you can do amazing things. The two, you and that horse together can do amazing things and you can help each other. Um, Emotions are these powers, you know, they're these powerful sources of energy and if you learn how to use them, there's so much you can do with them. With these kids, they have a really tough time learning how to saddle and bridle their emotions. They just kind of take them everywhere. And so regulating their emotions, you know, managing them, understanding what to do with them, understanding how to focus them and use them as energy, just something they don't do very well. Um, some other symptoms we see, and I see this in some, in some cases where they've got a driving impulsivity. It looks like a real severe ADHD hyperactivity but it doesn't seem to respond to medications. Mm-hmm. And so um, those kids tend to have a really tough time. Um, a lot of times we'll end up, at least the typical ADHD, they don't respond to the typical ADHD medications. So the stimulants and other things like mm-hmm. that that are derivative of those, they'll just have this driving. And so a lot of times what you'll end up seeing is they'll use antipsychotics to try and manage them and slow them down enough. But really you're almost snowing them a little bit so you have to almost kind of slow their whole brain process down so that they can actually regulate in their environment Mm -hmm. but if you do it too much then it becomes zombie-like and they become duller and less intelligent so it's just it's so (laughs) painful and sometimes with you i've also seen some success with some mood stabilizers um things that we use for people with bipolar disorder um sometimes they'll use like a mixture of a of a mild um um, new generation um, uh, antipsychotic and, and a low dose of a mood stabilizer and you can kind of tweak them just a little bit and get them into a decent space um, see some other things these kids struggle with um, you know sometimes you'll end up seeing an like an autism like profile so for example one time I had a young man had clear social deficits, sensory struggles. He would flap his hands when he got excited, you know, which you think totally is on the autism spectrum. But he'd look you in the eyes and he'd want to hug you and snuggle you. And, you know, he was this cute little bundle of entertaining joy. Um, But he still met all the criteria for being on the autism spectrum. And so I went into court um, in Austin, Texas. And they won me on the on the stand for six hours, and uh, in less than an hour, they gave up and just just moved on and agreed that he was on the autism spectrum. Um, the autism spectrum, you know, we used to kind of th- have this kind of philosophical, theoretical. This is what it is, but now they've kind of made this, or the, you know, originally autism. But now they've made this autism spectrum. It includes a wide swath of people that have, you know significant um, 
uh, neurodiversity that it really affects their social and functional abilities. And so many of these kids with pre with at least significant prenatal substance exposure, I think are best classified on the autism spectrum so they get their needs met for both social and functional and academic needs. Um, and I've argued every time I felt that they actually could be, and I've had to argue that in an academic court or even a legal court, I've won without any problems. So interesting. Yeah. Um, so you're talking about, you know, autism spectrum disorder, but whatever, what other, um, diagnosis out there could it be kind of misunderstood as or you know also yeah so if if they first off if they don't fall on the autism spectrum and, and you've got significant belief that there was um prenatal substance exposure that's clearly affecting them they should have a diagnosis of other specified neurodevelopmental disorder so i have seen way too many times that's not given by really smart people and they, 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 still, they think they have to either give autism or nothing. And what they have to do is they have to at least acknowledge that there is an other specified neuro, neurodevelopmental disorder. Uh, and then one thing that we see a lot of times that they're diagnosed with when they don't realize that there's a neurodiversity going on is I see a lot of these kids diagnosed with um, some form of an attachment disorder, um, some type like a reactive attachment disorder. I did a presentation on this, and when you pull up um, the prenatal alcohol exposure and you the, the behavioral and emotional symptoms of prenatal, and then you pull up reactive attachment disorder and put them right next to each other, they are eerily similar. Hmm. So I think while I do believe in attachment disorder and I do believe there's true cases of that, I've so often seen that someone assumes that the main impetus of this kid's problem is attachment when actually it's a much more grounded neurological issue. And when you can't manage your emotions and you get overwhelmed really easily and you dysregulate really easily and it's a neurologically based issue, it's different than when it's a psychological attachment related issue. There are two different ways of treating that. Sometimes, sadly, you'll see a kid that has a bit of both mm. and that can be a lot more complex. Um, but, um, yeah, that's for me a big deal is that these kids have these struggles. So, yeah, no, I, that's, um, great information on it. I think that understanding that, you know, there's all these other things that are kind of at play as well is, is really important when considering, you know, fetal alcohol exposure. Yeah. Um, what other things, you know, as we're kind of wrapping up, do you feel is really important to kind of note about fetal alcohol exposure um, and how it plays out in the world? Um, I think we need to probably do a whole episode on treatment. Um, maybe we'll try and get together with a few colleagues of mine to try and talk about that. But um, one of the things that that's hard for me is that a lot of these kids get um, diagnosed as being oppositional when they're just trying to manage their world and they're not trying to be oppositional. Um, I think if we really understood how many people suffered from prenatal substance exposure that were in prisons and state hospitals, I think it would be um, we probably have a revolt in this country about how we look at and deal with substances. And it's not to say we should, you know, I'm, I'm against substances per se, like I have a lot of, you know, 
great people in my life that that drink alcohol and, and such like that. But I definitely think, you know, increasing our responsibility, increasing our level of awareness and understanding of how these things can affect um, a, a, a developing fetus is really huge. I, I think that there's a huge amount of people that are in prison who are prenatally subs- had prenatal substance exposure, and that affect their ability to manage their emotions, to control their impulses, and so they ended up in the criminal system really quickly. And they're considered to have antisocial personality disorder when really they just can't have a tough time regulating their own brains. Knowledge is power. Yep. I think just understanding, you know, the effects of what these substances can cause, like I think, you know, is is really important, but doesn't necessarily mean consuming it, you're doing this, but yeah. yeah. Anyway. All right, well thank you. I appreciate it. That was um that was great. And then yeah, I definitely think that we should go further into, you know, how to actually work with someone that might have exposure. Yeah. And and going forward. So thank you. Thank you everybody. Hello listeners, I just wanted to add in one extra segment to this podcast. I want to make it really clear that um, abstinence is not what I'm preaching in any way related to substance use, Um, uh, obviously legal substance use, but more importantly what I'm trying to get across is awareness and responsibility both in the use of it and as practitioners when we run across people who may have been exposed prenatally to substances that we are aware of what's going on and responsible about um, the way that we attempt to work with and help these students to make sure that they're not just being labeled as oppositional or given misdiagnosis but actually being cared for and understood so just want to make sure that was clear that awareness and responsibility both in use and in clinical understanding and acumen. Thank you for listening to Neurodiversity University with Dr. Brandon Park. And please share us, follow us, like us, and review us on all your social media platforms. And just so you know, this was brought to you by New Focus Academy. Thank you again. Bye.